Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in the NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. Late last week, the Biden administration issued a new final rule regarding the implementation of the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021, specifically the surprise billing ban, as well as certain transparency provisions. The CAA, which passed almost two years ago now, banned the practice of balanced billing and put into place consumer protections so that patients are no longer saddled with a surprise bill. However, the implementation of this law and specifically the independent dispute resolution process that deals with out-of-network bills, has been subject to scrutiny and provider-backed lawsuits. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy Buckner is back to discuss the new rule and what it means moving forward. Before we get into the weeds of balanced billing, last week's guidance touched on the transparency provisions, including a requirement that Non-grandfathered health plans post information on a public website regarding in-network and out-of-network allowed amounts and bill charges for covered services. A lot of NAHU members have expressed concern over this requirement, and many report that their clients are confused about what exactly they're responsible for. So what did this new guidance say? Thanks, Dan. So we're really grateful for this guidance. I wish it had come out earlier this summer since we're sitting towards the end of August and the implementation date was July 1st. This isn't the first time we've gotten guidance after an implementation date has passed and it probably will not be the last time that happens, but a lot of employers had a sigh of relief when they realized that hopefully they were somewhat in compliance, but that if they had not set up their own website to display this information in a machine-readable format that they are able to share that obligation with either a TPA or a carrier. So what we were hearing with this requirement of displaying those bill charged amounts, and once again, this is the requirement to publish it in a machine-readable format. So it's not in a format that people are necessarily even supposed to be able to understand, If you've seen some of these machine-readable formats listed, it kind of looks like a bunch of hieroglyphics. It's very hard for a human to be able to decipher the data that is in these files. So from the start, this wasn't supposed to be an attempt at actually providing clear transparency on what some of these charges are. That will come later in January when the plans are required to post the top 500 services, and then down the line, they'll be required to disclose all of the services, and that will be in a consumer-friendly format. So for right now, the requirement was to post these machine-readable files. And at first, when we were going through this and looking at ways to be in compliance, it does put the strict reading of the rule as it came out previously 
was that the employer had to to post these and that it needed to be on a public website. And so we heard from you guys that some of your employers don't have websites or they don't have websites that are public facing in that way, that they have more of a intranet where employees interact. And so some employers were were looking at ways that they could set up their own website to even be able to be in compliance with this. So these FAQs go through and specifically say that the employer is, again, able to share that responsibility with either a carrier or a TPA. And so for fully insured plans, this means that they are able to go into a written agreement with the carrier that the carrier will handle all the necessary disclosures on behalf of the groups. And in this situation, if an employer in a fully insured plan has that written agreement with the insurer and the insurer fails to be in compliance, then the insurer and not the plan sponsor, not the employer will be considered in violation of the TIC rules. Now, in comparison for self-funded plans, they're also able, according to this, to enter into a written agreement with a third party. In this case, most typically for a self-funded plan, it would be a TPA for the TPA to disclose that information. But in this situation, if the TPA fails to meet the requirements, then the plan sponsor or the employer is seen as being responsible for violation of the TIC rules. And again, that's for self-funded plans. So just kind of highlighting that as well to make sure that if you are working with the third party, you're following up and making sure that they are in compliance, especially if you're in a self-funded plan, because those penalties can really add up. They're $100 a day per violation per individual. To further clarify this, especially if you are an employer that has a public website for the health plan itself. In those cases, they do need to provide a link to the machine-readable files, but that's only if the plan sponsor already maintains a public website for the health plan itself. So if your company just has a website and you're not posting this information, it's not something that relates to your core business, which for most people it won't, then you will be in the position where you'll be able to work through either your carrier or TPA to be able to be in compliance with the TIC rules. So this I know is going to be, like I said, a huge relief to many employers that were struggling with the wording in the final rule, the way that it came out. Moving on to surprise billing. This is the third final rule on surprise billing. It's been several months since we've discussed the previous surprise billing ban regulations, so can you briefly remind folks what the Part 1 and Part 2 interim final rules establish? So in Part 1 of the interim final rules we received from the tri-agencies was really trying to kind of set the, the tone, set the base for Part two and part three. And so part one included a lot of definitions, a little bit of an outline of what they could kind of foresee for how they were going to structure the IDR process, the independent dispute resolution process, but not the actual how of how things were going to go into place. 
where we had definitions on the qualified payment amount and those sorts of things from part one, part two applied how to use the QPA. And in part two, one of the big pieces that ended up really impacting why we have a part three and the the language in part three is that in part two, and I know this is kind of confusing if you weren't following along with all of the different segments that came out in this kind of trilogy of surprise billing rules. But in part two, the tri-agencies said that if an independent dispute resolution entity, so an IDRE, which is also the arbiter or arbitrator, when they are going between the two amounts that are provided to them from the payer and the provider, and remember, because of the way that the No Surprises Act from Congress was written, This is baseball style arbitration, meaning the two parties provide their number that they are comfortable with paying, and then the IDRE chooses between those two numbers. In part two of the surprise billing rules, the agencies said that when the IDRE is looking at those two numbers, they are required to choose the number that's closest to the QPA unless there are some really crazy outstanding issues that should be taken into consideration. And then they need to provide more information about that and why they're not choosing the number that's closest to the QPA. So that was in part two. And we really liked this because the QPA, the qualified payment amount, is defined very closely to what the median in-network rate would be. And so for us, we really liked that because We preferred using the median in-network rate as a resolution process instead of the arbitration or IDR process. So this got us closer to lowering the amounts that consumers would end up paying in these surprise bills, getting them closer to that qualified payment amount. Well, as we just mentioned, this new third final rule released last week makes some changes to this IDR process and how the QPA is considered. So. What are these changes and what prompted the agencies to make these changes? So after part two was released, there were a number of lawsuits and they were challenging these rules in a number of different ways. Some were challenging part two and saying that requiring the IDRE to choose the number closest to the QPA violated the intent of Congress when they wrote this as a baseball-style arbitration process that that wasn't necessarily tied to a median and network rate or a QPA. Other entities challenged this saying that it violated their rights, some provider groups saying that it interfered with their ability to earn a living or to negotiate rates for their services. We saw one lawsuit actually thrown out because a physician was was saying that it violated his ability to, to earn a living and there actually had been no surprise billing claims concerning him. So they said that you don't have standing because you haven't gone through the IDRE process and you know been given a reimbursement that you felt was ridiculously low or something like that um, as a result of IDR. So they threw that one out saying he didn't have standing. But some of these others, they did consider the language 
arbitrary and capricious, meaning they think that the agencies overreached with how strict they were with the ways that part two was put together. So earlier this year, some guidance was released, and then now we have the interim final rule, which kind of refines the way that the QPA will be used. Basically, part three of the IFR says that the IDRE still needs to consider the QPA, but they also have to consider any other factors that either party would like to submit during the IDR process. However, they aren't able to consider something again if it's a factor that's already considered when putting together the QPA. So for example, the experience level of the healthcare provider is already something that is factored in when calculating the QPA. So neither of the parties could use that as an additional factor for the IDRE to consider when determining what the final resolution cost would be. In order for them to consider something, anything outside of the QPA, it has to be a data point or a factor that is not already included in how the QPA is defined. So they can't say, but, you know, I've been practicing in this for for decades and I'm an expert. That's already considered. Or if they're the only type of that kind of provider in the area, that's typically already accounted for in the QPA. So they can't ask for that to then be accounted for on top of the QPA. So it does kind of protect some of the, the language that was in existence before while also allowing a few other factors to be considered by the IDRE outside of the QPA. So that's not the only leading factor. It also asks for the IDRE to put in writing the reason for their decision-making and to really provide reports on the IDR process. And um, it's a little bit more specific than what we saw in previous interim final rules. There's also a provision that's a little different where they talk about downcoding. And downcoding is something that wasn't defined previously in some of the other interim final rules. And downcoding is when the payers look at what the provider has submitted for their claims, and then they choose codes that are a little bit less for reimbursement and so that's how you get the quote downcoding when the payers are trying to pay pay less and say that a specific service it was was really something else so that they can limit the amount that they're paying out. And so this specifically addresses downcoding and prohibits it. So while we were very supportive of part two of the surprise billing IFR because of the way that they use the qualified payment amount, we are still seeing the QPA truly being used to enforce the IDR process here. Our request to the administration is just that this was all put in place to try to lower costs for consumers. And when there is uncertainty in the market or uncertainty in the rules and the rules keep changing, then we oftentimes see carriers raising their rates or practitioners leaving networks. And what we really want is to make sure that we have rules in place that are predictable, that encourage healthcare providers to be in network so that we're not leading to some of these surprise billing issues to begin with. So what we really want is for us to agree on a process and and stick with it. Also, because when these disputes become 
more predictable, they're less likely to happen because practitioners will know that if they are submitting a certain bill, that the payer is more likely to quote unquote win in different IDR settings. And so it will kind of curb that behavior so that providers are truly working towards reimbursement at the median and network rate instead of avoiding being in network and and charging what that kind of QPA typically would be to try to get some of these larger reimbursements for folks that are out of network and may end up getting a surprise bill. So all of that being said, what does this final rule mean for the surprise billing ban moving forward? Does this new interim final rule quell the provider's concerns or do we still expect lawsuits to continue? So we're recording on Wednesday, and later this afternoon, there is going to be a hearing in one of the D.C. district courts to determine kind of where the Department of Justice is going with whether they're going to appeal some of the lower court rulings or let them stand. And the decision there will really be based on whether they think that this rule does truly kind of squelch some of those challenges to the previous IFRs. In which case, we will be able to kind of just move forward with this system and, and have it implemented using the QPA and IFR process the way that it's laid out in this third piece of the rules. I also think that this does pacify the providers, I think, as, as much as it could without totally going back on part two of this price billing IFR. And it also helps with some of those lower court challenges where there were different stays put in place or continuances on how to implement part two of the surprise billing IFR. This helps to kind of create a bridge so there's a way to implement this rule that won't violate many of those challenges. Because I know part of the reason why we have seen, I think, only 1,200 cases and in a decision from an IDRE is not just because there have been fewer surprise bills, because there have as a result of this, there was an estimate that at least 2 million surprise bills were prevented because of the No Surprises Act during the first quarter of this year. But some of the reasons why we haven't seen as many going all the way through the adjudication is because of these challenges in the court system and confusion on how to apply the rule. So I think in this circumstance, we're not going to see as many challenges. We're going to be able to see some of these finally being processed and hopefully leading to lower costs on the consumers. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. Marcy, what are we toasting to this week? This week, even though we've, we've spent the podcast talking about it, we are, are toasting to HHS, Treasury, and Department of Labor for releasing these interim final rules and specifically those FAQs on transparency. Even though they were released after the implementation date, we know that this will bring a big relief to employers across the country and help to truly implement the transparency standards that were the goals of the original rules when they were written. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour. 
the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.